my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Big Denver. Big Denver. Big Denver in January. In January. And in fact, we are going to extend Big Denver by one extra week. (laughs) If you haven't been listening up till now, Big Denver is the month where we talk about big movies. Big movies. Big things that you've heard of. None of this obscure shit. So we're going to talk about how Ralph Bakshi adapted Lord of the Rings into his own movie. Record scratch. (laughs) No, we're talking about the Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, the famous Peter Jackson trilogy. Now, we are coming into this episode with a huge disparity. You are a huge lifelong fan of these movies. I saw the first one in a theater, fell asleep. Saw the second one. Grandpa. Saw the second one in a theater, couldn't follow it. Didn't see the third one until this wow. week. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hadn't seen the third one until this week. That is, I mean, I'd seen bits of it on TV. But everybody in school was probably like, we love Lord of the Rings. Actually, I think we would have been in high school at this point, right? I The third one came out when we were in high school. Okay. When I was in high school. The other two came out when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. I had trouble following these movies. I don't have a great head for fantasy. Uh, I don't have a great head for when Earth is Middle Earth and the bad guys are orcs and there are hobbits and there are uh, other other species. Wow, this is a real grandpa episode out of Will. I'm not proud of this. I'm not saying this to like like say I'm above this. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm far beneath it. Yes. Well, I'm going to say right off the bat, just to you know maybe lower myself a little bit to your level, that I have no affinity for Lord of the Rings as a property. So have you read the books? No. Oh my God. Yes. Have I, was, I tried to read the books? Yes. I was hoping you had, and then Uh-oh. we could generate some productive friction here. No. So I love The Hobbit, but that is a children's book. So I That's read it right. as a child. Well, thank God they made three movies out of it. <laughs> yes. And uh, when it came to Lord of the Rings, I saw the movies and I was like, I love this. I can't wait to read the books. Tom Bombadil. Huh. So can I start? And I was going to test this on you to see mm-hmm. if you'd read the book and I could I could see if this was true. I read the Roger Ebert reviews of these movies mm-hmm. with great interest. And uh, his perspective was that he liked these movies, but he thought that they were much more weighted to being huge action movies, big CGI spectacle. And they took the emphasis off The Hobbits and they took the emphasis off the whimsical uh, kind of adventure that Tolkien did. Yes. You, as someone who has not read the book, I'm nope, going to ask, I cannot comment on that. that and that I would true? say that I would probably like the movies less if that was the case. Do you know why I was excited for The Lord of the Rings? Well, it was a big property that I knew of, mm-hmm. and I found a little bit impenetrable as a child and teenager, but I love Peter Jackson. So I was a Peter Jackson fan before these movies came out. Okay, that's nuts. Yeah. Just somebody of our generation who, who knew Peter Jackson before the movies. What was your entryway into Peter Jackson? Dead Alive. Okay. That was my interview. How old were you? Uh, I think I was 14. And it's from the uh, famous weekend where I watched Dawn of the Dead for the first time. And I went looking into other movies that directors had made. And Dead Alive was the second one that I watched. What a weekend. What a double bill. Well, so not only did I get Dead Alive, but when I watched it, I realized it was the R-rated cut. And I went out in the rain that same day to find another video store in my small town to see if they had the unrated cut of Dead Alive. And they did. Now, when I think of Peter Jackson, uh, a sort of received wisdom that I have in my head is like the the early ones and you could see them uh, the, the early ones feel like really different mm-hmm. you know they're extremely gory something like meet the feebles is full of like incredibly sophomoric humor which i say with affection mm-hmm. and uh then he was on his best behavior for the lord of the rings and from that point on he was sort of i don't want to say gentrified but he was tamed as a filmmaker do you think is that fair for me to say i don't think that's quite fair i think it's maybe the opposite uh, he was kind of unleashed with the latter period of the Lord of the Rings films going into The Hobbit. And I think that was a little bit to his detriment that he didn't have anything to fight. Or King Kong, for example. No one's saying, like, you shouldn't do this or you should, you know, maybe push it in this direction. What's the continuity do you see between those early movies and something like The Return of the King? Return of the King? I think that there's definitely that energy and that love of spectacle. Like, you look at Dead Alive, there's the same love of spectacle in that that you see in something like Return of the King. It just, there's no gore because you can't really do it that way. But a love of, like, creatures and the energy that and the way that it's presented on screen, I think it's very consistent in both films where he's getting lost is no one telling him does this need to be three and a half four hours long and that's like the stumbling block that i even run into when i watch something like return of the king well i'm sure we'll get to some of the later peter jackson movies later in this discussion Mm -hmm. uh but let's talk about the the trilogy so 
uh, when these movies came out, Fellowship of the Ring is coming out. You're like, Ugh, do I have to see this? Well, you know, it was this and Harry Potter in the same season. And it was. And a, you were such a big Harry Potter fan. Uh, I've also not read those books. <laughs> I, I you, somehow. You, you somehow I know. dodged the Harry Potter bullet? Well, I've seen all. all right. I saw all the, the movies. next year, two episodes, all the Harry Potter films. I've seen all the, I do not like I've seen much. all the Harry Potter movies. Okay. I saw them all as they were coming out, and I've not seen any of them a second time. No, me neither. People but, are like, how could they? <laughs> so I'm sorry if this big Denver episode is disappointing to the listeners. Well, I'll say that like Harry Potter, those films... I was missing that Peter Jackson kind of personality. Absolutely. Them. Say what you will, like, oh, Chris Columbus is bringing that energy. Or, you know, Prisoner of Azkaban is the best one because there's actually a director behind it. But there wasn't that kind of coherence or like, oh, I can't wait to see how this will be engineered. So when you get like these British journeymen directing the back half, completely losing interest. Absolutely. So with Lord of the Rings, I mean, one of the things that's notable about it is that it is like, it's not just a faithful adaptation of the books, I understand, but it is kind of an auteur project. Yeah. It is the project of one man's vision that he apparently had to like really fight for mm -hmm. as well. It wasn't like a going to the studio and studio going, what do you want to make, Lord of the Rings? And they're like, hey, I guess I'll make Lord of the Rings. It's like he's fighting for it. He's doing it in his home country with his home team of like Weta Digital and you know the city that he built for these three movies that would then be the anchor that would drag him down, forcing him to make the Hobbit films. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. So first, a plot synopsis. You've got a place called The Shire, mm -hmm. and it's a, a Doo -doo -doo. little... So it's a little village. There's like a hill and they all have little little holes on the wall. Mm -hmm. And that's where the hobbits live. Now, the hobbits are small men. And you got Bilbo, you got Frodo, you got uh, Sam. Now, did you bounce off of this movie that it's basically a sequel to a film that does not exist when this came out? I had read The Hobbit when I was a child. Oh, so did you I, like The Hobbit when you were a child? Yeah, basically. Okay. I, I knew I knew what it was about. But I mean, The Lord of the Rings is a whole other level of complexity. Mm -hmm. the, the Hobbit is like the beta version. Yeah. You know? So that's why you kind of shut down the first time you saw it because you're like i can't take this and you fell asleep like imagine me as a kid picking up fellowship of the ring as a book and like imagine how far i got into it a page and a half probably so i don't want to like you know poo poo the lord of the rings books they're clearly loved yeah by millions we're not of doing that they're i'm saying that i don't have a head for it they're very dull <laughs> like okay, they okay. move like molasses lots of great ideas but J.R.R. tolkien like he loves those kind of myth and arthurian legends and those books are not you know paid page turners either well this is what roger ebert was suggesting in his reviews that peter jackson basically turned them into action movies yeah that's fine okay <laughs> like, yeah i mean he made a version that i like and want to go see sure so get, getting back to the plot you got a you got a shire and there's there's a ring that needs destroying and you got a big wizard man named gandalf and he comes and and he first of all he has to bend over to get into any of these mm -hmm. houses it's it's hard for him you weren't impressed by all the tall. the fake trickery in the, camera the that perspective yeah. well actually i was and i'm gonna interrupt the plot synopsis now that was i was doing so well <laughs> that we got like 10 minutes into the film <laughs> yeah yeah if that and note that watching these movies in the present context of course one of the things i'm thinking about is how blockbusters have both changed and remained the same in 20 years uh one of the things that's so delightful about the first movie especially is it looks like it was shot in actual forests uh -huh. on actual on rivers with sets yeah, trickery, forced perspective, models, that sort of thing. Yeah, anytime you see like a location, the camera zooms around it, that's a model they built and they shot, you know, and then just pasted into the film. And there's a sort of like weird feeling because you look at any of the sort of Marvel movies, and I hate always bringing up Marvel <laughs> as the cudgel to beat <laughs> the dead horse. It's like, yeah, but, but, Look, I'm also bringing it up neutrally as the thing that is like the de has been the default blockbuster mode for mm. the last 10 years. Those movies are largely shot against green screens. Yeah. You know, and not that to say to say there's no green screens in these movies. There's lots of them, especially as it goes on. Yeah. Um, but those early ones where it's like guys in forests and stuff still has a little bit of that Monty Python and the Holy Grail energy to it. Mm. Before I forget, I should say that the three movies that we're talking about, they were shot simultaneously. And then over released, the course of years, right? Oh, yeah, uh, I think it was a little bit more than one year, like 15 months. Okay. But then, like, they would each come out in December, and then they would do, like, pickups all mm -hmm. over the place to get them out. Mm -hmm. But that's just something to consider, that there was no kind of, like, oh, reevaluating, you know, how we should do this. And I think that's why, especially the first two, are very pure in the way that they were made, because there was no weight of expectation. And a consistency of vision across yeah, all three. Now, comparing these, again, to modern blockbusters, 
another thing one considers is how earnest they are. Uh-huh. Did that just happen? Yeah, there's none of that. They fly now. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just modern blockbusters. I admire the sort of purity of the vision where there are so many, so many blockbusters uh, of any era where it's like, okay, here's the scene where the Joker dances to Prince music, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the scenes that feel like real concessions to the market. And this movie doesn't, I mean, to the extent that the whole movie is a concession to the market and that it's a huge like CGI action movie, mm-hmm. there's still a purity of it. Like it's incredibly earnest. Yeah. Uh, it's incredibly nerdy. It's uh, has all the lore. There are no jokes. Well, there's jokes. Yeah, but it's not like it's not postmodern. No, it's not like, postmodern. It's like, can you believe this is happening? Yeah. So, I mean, it is basically Peter Jackson's sense of humor, which is a pure like there's jokes in Dead Alive. Yeah. So it's kind of an extension of that kind of slapsticky, goofy stuff. You don't really see too much in modern blockbusters because people will look at it it's like, yeah, isn't that a little dumb or sophomoric? But that's what he likes. So that's what you get in these films. Yeah. So to continue the plot synopsis, Will. Uh, so they got a ring and they got to go to a place called Mordor mm-hmm. where they're going to drop the ring. There. And these movies are all just walking. Here's yeah. the first movie. Here's the second movie. Here's the third movie. <laughs> Your Randall's getting a little rough there from I think Clerks it's pretty 2. Good. Yeah, that was my my hilarious reenactment of a scene from Clerks 2, which had heretofore been my greatest sustained exposure to this franchise. Here's the thing, Kevin Smith. I like seeing people walk in real locations. It's nice. Can I just say we're outside? These movies are not just walking. No, they're there's, not. there's stuff happening all over the place. Why don't they get the eagles to pick them up and drop it off? Because they want to go in secretly. And there's also dragons that can fly that would just attack the eagles. I watched that scene from Clerks 2 again between movies. <laughs> uh, like af- after, like, I want my people to talk to me. I was watching these movies, of course, with my domestic partner. Mm-hmm. And then after the second one was over, I was like, okay, before we start the third, watch this. Give me a little context. We watched the scene from Clerks. <laughs> Clerks 2, which is, if you watch it, it's incredibly homophobic also. Oh, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> it's like, and then after it was over, she was like, wow. You like these movies? She was like, wow, <laughs> no thanks for showing me that. <laughs> now, your partner does like these movies, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons why we're doing this episode is just because, like, it's tradition for so many people just mm-hmm. in the days after Christmas. It is for me and my family, too. Just watch these movies because they're perfect, like, Boxing Week movies. Just long, lazy movies that you can sit down and watch. And, and then my father can fall asleep in front of 30 minutes in. You're probably, if you're not me, you're probably very familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And you can tune in and tune out. And uh, you can have your whole family who you don't like sitting in front of them. And you don't have to talk. And it, and it cuts into, like, four hours. That's if right. You watch, if you watch all three, you got yourself a 12-hour marriage. That's a whole day. If if you're watching the extended cuts, yes. too. Yeah. Now, did you watch the extended or the theatrical ones? I believe I watched the theatrical ones. Okay, so you went no, easy. Actually, the third one, I watched the extended. Oh, that's the rough, roughest yeah. extended one. I mean, this is another kind of event that you would get as they were coming out, was that you would get the DVD. It'd be, you know, uh, normal theatrical version, no real special features. And then... If you waited till like the months of the next one, you'd get a big box with like five discs. And they looked like books yeah. and you would put them on your shelf and you would have your little Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, well, it looked bo- nice. Bookshelf. It, it did look nice. And that Peter Jackson was a filmmaker who was very honest about the difficulties he would have with these movies. Like, if you listen to the commentary on the first one, he says, like, we didn't want to do a prologue. And New Line said, you have to do a prologue, which is also kind of difficult for fans of the movie to imagine it without that, like, scene setting prologue. I'm so glad he had the prologue. Me too. (laughs) Because nothing would have happened for an hour if he didn't have that opening as well in terms of, like, excitement. Because it'd be like, Hobbits, Shire, they're going on an adventure. Eventually, they meet Aragorn and have, like wild stuff happens as, as these movies are based i'm watching them for the first time i'm basically just jumping from association to association feeling to feeling vibe to vibe i'm trying to work through my feelings of like coming to these movies so late and uh i will say a feeling maybe you'll agree maybe you'll disagree i like the first one the best i agree with you 100 yeah thank you because it feels the most like a story mm-hmm. uh it has the most sort of mix of tones and moods but it also has a very clear point of view through Frodo, which gets diluted in the other two films. I completely agree. And I also feel, I apologize if people disagree, that the second and third sometimes get a bit bogged down with the big CGI action scenes. Yeah, I can agree with that. You know, the huge, the third one especially, the whole second half is basically spectacle. I agree with you. And well, when we get to the third one, I have a lot of criticisms for it. But the first one, Mm, just it hits those beats you feel like it's the one that was worked on the most and i also feel like the world's building the scene setting of the first one Mm. uh there is something 
quite magical about it. Also it also ramps you up as you go along, yeah. introducing elements. So it's not like you have that big intro, but then once you get to the Shire, like you meet those like black cloak uh, figures and they're scary because they are understandable. It's not like a big CGI thing right from the get-go. And yeah, I like the, just the pace of getting to know the hobbits mm. in those early scenes. Now, the second movie has Gollum or Schmeagol, mm. who is- I'm uh, going to say- not a big fan of You're Gollum. not a big fan of Gollum. He's all right, yeah. Oh, I think he's a great character. No, there I mean, I think he's a great character. It just, you know, those bits, man. It's just all that shtick. Maybe I've lived with him too long. I guess so. I mean, he's iconic yeah. and a lot of people have seen these movies much more than I have. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one of the things that you think about when you're watching a movie from 20 years ago that's like this is the special effects. Mm -hmm. Certain of the special effects in these movies are showing their age, although it still looks better than The Flash, yeah. which, you know, came out last hey, year. They did those special effects badly on purpose, Will. Yeah. So <laughs> Gollum is a great character. He's a great, uh, a beautifully conceived character because... Uh, obviously, he doesn't look entirely photorealistic anymore. He looks, he has that uncanny valley digital and that's quality, fine. but he is stylized, yeah. you know? The integration of motion capture with digital effects creates something that is, it's not like Tom Hanks in the Polar Express. It's using the technology to create something hyper real yeah. as, as opposed to a simulation. Well, it's of all reality. about stylization, like yeah. you said, that if you're not going for that hyper real look, that you can push it in a direction where emotion is derived from it because you can connect like the big giant eyes out of the point of connection. And that like Pixar directors would say like, you need characters with big eyes so you can see them because that's how you connect with someone emotionally. I would also say that the integration of real world and practical special effects with CGI effects throughout the movies uh, is smart. The CGI feels like it is used as a sort of supplement to reality. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, in the third one, it gets a little bit iffier. Yeah. Because the thing about Peter Jackson is he loves CGI. He's always loved CGI. I remember on the commentary for The Frighteners, he goes, Ah, one day we could do a CGI gore film. Imagine what we could do. No, no, get that out no. of here. Nobody wants this. We've had a lot of CGI <laughs> yeah, gore films. Yeah, they're bad. Nobody likes them. But when you watch something like Fellowship of the Ring, Peter Jackson is also saying... A lot of stuff that makes a lot of sense, like when he had the two wizards duel it out at the beginning of the film, where it's Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen, he didn't want like big energy beams throwing at each other. So it's a very physical thing where you see like stuntmen being thrown against walls and, you know, the kind of stuff that you do for money related reasons, but also for impact related reasons. Well, and also... In terms of impact in those big battle scenes, like he's always he's always keeping things like there are the huge glory shots of, you know, the huge CGI crash oh, crashing into each other. But he is always like keeping you invested in all of these individual stories. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like I mean, certain of the Avengers movies. Sorry, I hate to keep bringing up Marvel, <laughs> in, but how can I not? I'm already dead, Will. How can Why? I not? Like like there are certain movies like all of the action scenes in these movies still have like the sort of the weight and the personal stakes. Well, I would say that like he takes time to individualize even the enemy that you can see like, oh, okay, that has weight, that has feeling because I've seen a close-up of a big uh, Urukai in his makeup and like the practical effects. While when you see like in an Avengers film, some alien that's introduced in the last second that I couldn't even draw for you because I can't, you know, think of what it looks like. That's a big difference. And I think that Peter Jackson at this point in time understood that. And it's why something like Fellowship of the Ring works as well as it does. And Fellowship of the Ring also doesn't have any big armies crashing together once you get past that prologue. That it always feels like you're with this core group of characters, you're invested in them. And that like when they face one orc in the, when they're in the big cave at the end, that has weight because yes. like, oh, it is unimaginable that we'll be able to defeat something like this. Now you mentioned you have problems with the third movie. Yes. What are they? Two hours of the extended edition, seemingly nothing happens, yeah. and the characters aren't really doing anything. Mm -hmm. And it made me go, oh, maybe these should have been two movies. Originally, in their pitch, the first film was going to climax with the Two Towers climax, like the Battle of Helm's Deep. I don't know how that would have worked. Would it have felt too rushed? Maybe. It could have been three movies. They didn't need all to be four hours long. I think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. And where do you stand on all of the endings? Because uh, fa famously, famously. It doesn't bother me at all. It actually did not bother me at all. In this because I want to see what happens to all these characters as it goes on. A lot of threads to wrap up. Mm -hmm. um, and if you take it as one nine-hour movie. Yeah. Um, it makes sense that you would have that many endings at the end of it. What I would say is there are certain endings I would have synthesized. Oh, I really? would have kind of cross-cut or put them together. You I, know. I, watching it, I was very aware of it. So you have like the end 
where you feel like it ends where they're on the rock and they're surrounded by lava. I find that very emotional and they're talking about their home. The the bit where it started to get me was after Frodo and Bilbo have, are on the boat going off to off to heaven, basically. Yeah. And like then the it basically fades out yeah. and then it fades back in for one more ending. I, yeah, I think that's the one where it feels like it should be over and it's not. Yes. The words the end come up on screen. You can't you can't oh. help, you can't help but laugh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so funny that he actually ends it with the words the end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there and back again, as you will. And the second one, though, I do like it a lot, even though that it starts to kind of diffuse, mostly because the characters split up, which if you follow the novels, you have to do. I should point out as well, like these novels, in the movie, you know, when Gandalf takes the ring, and he's like, I'm going to go research this and, you know, figure out what it is. Right. In the novel, there is a break of 17 years from Bilbo leaving to Gandalf coming back and telling Frodo, oh, this is what the ring is. So, you know, a lot of people will complain about what Peter Jackson and his co-writers changed, but like he juiced it up. He made it into a movie, Roger Ebert. I do want to talk a little bit about the rest of Peter Jackson's career while we're on this subject. Oh, no. uh, so did you see King Kong in the theater? Of course I did. Course Very excited. Did. did I follow those uh, webisodes as they were coming out? Yes, I did. So King Kong, which has its good points, mm. uh, but definitely a case of like directorial excess. Definitely oh, a man on, the, on top of no the world. No one's telling him no. And the whole first hour on the boat. Terrible. A little Cut much. It. A little you much. Gotta, there's characters just slice them right out of there. You don't need them. You don't need to see them dancing. Now, Peter Jackson wrote a draft of King Kong in 1990 or 1990s that was very different and had like a scene at the end where King Kong was on the Empire State Building and uh, the Adrian Brody character would fly his biplane, jump out of the plane and like run down his arm to like <laughs> kill King Kong. That's a version I would have liked to see. Like fun Peter Jackson. I bring up King Kong in relation to the Lord of the Rings movies because it's a movie that does kind of show the limits of some of the technological breakthroughs of Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, he was very high on what he'd accomplished with Gollum. Look, we know the dino scene looks like shit when they're running away from the dinosaurs. But I was I was really thinking, yeah, that does look like shit. But <laughs> yeah. I, what I'm really thinking about is King Kong as a character where in all the interviews with Peter Jackson at the time, he would say that one of his motivations was like with CGI, with motion capture. I think it was Andy Serkis as Kong again. Yeah, like you can, it was. Like you can bring so much more emotion, so much more acting to the character of King Kong, much like he did with Gollum. It's like, wow, we've done it with Gollum. Now let's take this movie that I loved as a child and infuse that, improve upon it. And I love the Claymation Kong so much more. Love him so much. Well, a big mistake that he makes, and it's something that when you get involved with technology, you do, is you go, well, now we can do it more realistic. King Kong will look more like an ape. Get that out of here. I don't want any of that stuff. And you start to realize, yeah, no matter what he did with Gollum, like some of what's powerful about Gollum is that is that there is a disjunction between him and reality. Yeah, that's you know? stylization, as we talked about. That's what makes him powerful. And the 1933 King Kong, the fact that you actually do have to use your imagination a little bit to animate Kong is where a lot of that power lies. Mm -hmm. And that's why nobody feels the same affection for 2005 Kong. It's also too long. Too long. It has a bunch of other flaws. Yeah. But I, I, I think that the gorilla looks okay in it, even though sure. that's not how I would have gone about it. Well, it cost a lot of money. It better look okay. And I would have loved to see what he would have done in the 90s. Would he have done it with CGI? I mean, that would have looked like garbage. Or would he have figured out like a Rick Baker man in suit way to go about it, which is probably what he would have done. Probably a mix. Mm -hmm. Now, Peter Jackson, King of the World, and his his directorial career ends here. He died shortly after <laughs> King Kong. No, that's Wait, what's that on my shelf? The Lovely Bones? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, did I track down a copy of The Lovely Bones? Because on the very rare second Blu-ray, there is a five-hour commentary slash documentary where they watch, like, outtakes and, like, you know, of the movie and talk through it. Yes. Do I like The Lovely Bones? No. Bad movie. Very bad. The Hobbit movies came out then, which I'm sure will be a useful compare and contrast exercise with Lord of the Rings. Well, Big Denver in 2025, The oh, Hobbit Oh my film. god. You've never seen me. them, I'm sure. I have not seen them. What if you love them? Maybe I will. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of things I haven't seen that I would love. Yes. But when those movies were coming out, I thought, you can't take a 200-page book and split it into three movies and make expect me to come. Well... <laughs> 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 sorry expect me to arrive at the theater so and then ejaculate for people that don't know the story of the hobbit it got caught up in a wild kind of thing between studios uh Guillermo del toro was supposed to direct it he spent years of his life developing it he lived in new zealand wasn't gonna happen he left it 
And Peter Jackson was then trapped with a situation that he had thousands of people employed and that a studio they had built to make this movie. And if he didn't do it, nobody else would. And he also did not have any time to prepare. No, he did not know what the movie was going to be. So they were this big, like, billion-dollar mammoth three-movie super production he was winging at yeah. day by day. Like Wingnut no, Film, the name of his film company. No storyboards. Now, uh, is it not also the case, too, that the studio was thinking of moving production to, like, Romania or something? Yes. And, and then... Uh, they they destroyed union laws. They negotiated a deal where yes, unions are now outlawed in the film industry and <laughs> well, in New Zealand. Not exactly, but yeah. uh, they did probably more harm than good in that situation. But, it's like a residual thing, right? But thank goodness we got the Hobbit trilogy out of it. Hey, listen, I'm sure that people that worked on it, they're like, it's our livelihood. We were able to do it. If you want to watch the documentaries on the Blu-ray, they are amazing because Peter Jackson lets himself look like shit. There's some famous shots of like the camera zooming in on him during a meeting where he has like a thousand yard PTSD stare. They actually capture the moment where they shut down production because they went, we don't know what this is. And that uh, it's going to be a third movie now, which they decided in the middle of oh production. God. As our resident Hobbit and Lord of the Rings scholar. Yeah, that's me. What is the difference between the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies? Uh, they're boring. They're too long. There's even more fluff. There's nothing grounded. It looks like CG. Never forget that the Hobbit and history is trying to was famously shot at 48 frames per second. Oh, my God. So when it came to blu-ray they had to do a lot of weird stuff to it so you know the the lord of the rings films has a look in a lot of the scenes i'm not a big fan of which is like the blown out look yeah it very the, brightly lit the hobbit is that times a hundred percent because when you shot it in 48 frames per second if you see photos from the set they look bonkers because of what they had to do of the way images were captured in it now the logic for doing 48 frames per second is it looks better in 3d doesn't matter. Still looks like shit. People don't like it. Mm -hmm. So that really killed them, especially that they shot the Hobbit films like Lord of the Rings in one big block. They're just not good. They just, the story can't support it. There's too much kind of extraneous stuff. Are they still all three and a half hours long? They are indeed. And they have extended editions. Yes, they do as well. Good God. Yeah, it's too long. I mean, Lord of the Rings, people still love them. They still keep getting watched. The Hobbit will only ever be kind of like an anecdote to that, I feel. Like, mm -hmm. hey, these Hobbit films. I mean, the Hobbit films were also massive successes, like at the box office. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the Lord of the Rings is still a viable franchise. There's like that Amazon Rings show. of Power, which cost a billion dollars. Did not even, and Amazon did what they threatened uh, to do to Peter Jackson. They moved to another country. Wow. And it's not, I don't know if any Weta people are involved. No interest in that show. None at all. Number one, prequel. <laughs> Who cares? I never hear anyone talk about no it. No one talks about it. So a billion dollars well spent. Number two, they're Peter Jackson, Lord of the Ring fan films where they're just like imitating the style that he already put down, but without his kind of authorial or creative kind of pushing them. Yeah, no well, thank you. following in the proud tradition of J.R.R. Tolkien of creating a bunch of other nooks and crannies in the universe that will only be watched <laughs> by obsessives. So in the commentary of the first one, uh, Peter Jackson mentions that his wife, Fran Walsh, does the voice for the ring race. They're like, ah, sound effect. And he, he makes a joke going, Ah, yes. Uh, we got that sound when I told her that we were uh, got the rights to the Similarian. Oh, I'm probably saying that incorrectly. The, the Silmarillion, the, sir. There you go. You're the real expert on this yeah, subject. that's right. And that makes me so sad to hear that, knowing that they did force themselves then to do three <laughs> more movies, think they did not want to do. So did you gain an appreciation and enjoyment of watching all these films now? I absolutely did. Okay. I, I enjoyed all of these movies. I think they have much to recommend. They are beautiful. They are epic in scope and scale, but also have a certain handcrafted quality that is sadly absent from so many blockbusters. It's a last gasp that we'll probably never get to because no one will ever be able to do something like this. They basically, they are technically kind of like independent films, like New Line Cinema was involved with them, but New Line was not a massive company themselves. And they just kind of let them do their own thing in New Zealand. That is never, ever going to happen again. Tragic. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to let you finish, Justin, but before you say the letters, I have a huge event to publicize. Oh, yes. Mass I'm glad that you're coming in here. Massive event. So, Folks listening will know that we have a screening series at the Fox Cinema in Toronto, Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classics. Well, it's coming back, and on January 23rd, we have our biggest screening yet. Well, what could it be? Magnificent Amberson is the uncut version? Uh, well, we're going to do that in March. Oh, uh, much better. But, much better. But in January, we are showing a Bruce Bloitation classic. <gasps> 
The Dragon Lives Again on the big screen. If you don't know what The Dragon Lives Again is, it's a 1976 kung fu comedy in which Bruce Lee goes to hell, fights James Bond, Dracula, Clint Eastwood, and many other 1970s pop culture icons, and befriends Popeye the Sailor. One of the greatest movies of all time. It's action-packed. It's hilarious. It's self-aware. Uh, you've never seen anything like it. It's incredibly low budget. Yep. And it has a uh, huge charm. And we are showing a new restoration by the American Genre Film Archive. A new restoration they've been sitting on for a couple of years. Uh, it's new to us yep. because on home video, you can only find this movie in washed out pan and scan versions. Some of them have great commentary tracks. So the Blu-ray releases that have come out. I, I have heard that. But this. Stop asking me. I'm not putting it out again. The image quality of this. It's in widescreen for the first time since the 70s and you've never seen anything like it and it's your well i may have because i did see it on 35 millimeter at one of grady hendrix's kung fu Fridays things and i believe that this is the same print yeah it's the mastered from the only existing 35 millimeter print Mm -hmm. so it'll be like visiting an old friend for me so january 23rd come out uh we'll be selling blu-rays uh there will be an introduction by us there will be uh games and party tricks (laughs) yeah uh, that's right all all sorts of things autographs will be signed and you'll never see this movie in a theater again well maybe i mean no no you'll never see this movie oh yeah you'll never see it never see it in a theater again yeah are we gonna be like the golden turkey guys we're gonna go on tour with the dragon lives again i'd love to dream i'd love love to 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 see it in a theater Mm -hmm. see this movie on a big screen i mean can you imagine well i'm so excited bruce lee gets a boner in this film oh man oh man dragon lives again fox theater on january 23rd it is well worth the the long trip east to the beaches neighborhood oh and for even for us Toronto natives, it is a long trip to get there. S- sell it, sell it. It's not that long. It's like what forty minutes on the streetcar, and yes. you're there. Hey, maybe you live down in that section. Maybe you're coming from out of town, so it's not a long trip at all. Here's the thing: you will not remember the transit. You no, will, you, will you will remember, remember the experience. You will remember the night, and we'll be there. And if you have, holding your hand, if you have an issue with us, metaphorically, if you have an issue with us that you've always wanted to say, you can no, t- no, no, you no, can no, tell us to will. To me, me. To me, yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. So our first letter, Red Flag Filmmakers. Hello, okay. Justin and Will. Will's, Will's getting ready. Your podcast. I only like Red Flag Filmmakers. Oh, man. I submit the question to both of you. Who is one filmmaker that if someone told you they were their favorite filmmaker, you would consider it a red flag? It's a good question, but I also feel like I hope that I wouldn't react that harshly. Well, someone recently told me that their favorite film of all time, maybe he said of all time, but definitely his favorite Star Wars film was Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace. And I went, what? Uh-huh. Did I say, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. Their taste is bad. No. I wanted to know more. <laughs> Explain it to me. I love this. Uh, here's what I think. I think movies are important, but they're not that important. No. And somebody can be a wonderful person and have much to offer while also having taste in movies that I disagree with. Now, uh, there are certain things that somebody could say that will signal to me they probably don't have much to say about movies. Yeah. Which is fine. If somebody says, I don't like black and white movies, if somebody says, I won't read subtitles, that signals to me they're not thinking seriously about the medium. Yeah. Uh, But that's fine. That's fine. They may offer other things. They may think seriously about other things. Mm -hmm. They may be nice people. So that would be my answer. I'm, I'm struggling to think outside of if somebody said, Oh, I love Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah. You know? Unironically. If somebody, if you picked like a really like hateful filmmaker and were like. Like what's that? Like, oh, Mel Gibson's my favorite filmmaker. Yeah. Which the director of RRR did say. I mean, Mel Gibson obviously is a talented director. Yeah. But. Makes entertaining motion films. But, but yeah, if, if, if somebody, you know, also if somebody said like. I just saw a great new movie called Lady Ballers. I would, I, I would probably think Sound of Freedom. Yeah, Sound of Freedom. If somebody said that, I would probably think interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that isn't completely representative of their personality. Mm-hmm. What uh, about you? Any uh, red flags? Basically, just that, like right wing dreck. Yeah. would make me go like, ugh. Yeah. But if they're very nice and, you know, maybe you work a job with that person and you can get along, that's fine. Yeah. Like, you don't need to agree with their film taste. It doesn't define their personality or anything like that. That's or right. how they act around you now. Are they hateful individuals in other situations? Maybe I can't control that. Like, would I be their bestest friend? Maybe not. Yeah. Because movies are very present in my life. So you kind of have to like what I like. But I have a lot of friends that I don't agree with all of their tastes. I mean, there are lots of people. Will? There are lots of people with great taste who are wretched individuals like me. 
Yeah, exactly. So, well, you know, we can agree to disagree about some of the things you just said. <laughs> like Will said, Le- Lenny, Re- Lenny, I think is probably the only one. Lenny can... Riefenstahl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, our... what a great formalist, though. You know, really, really. Is she on the list? Have I? Because uh... I'm sure, I'm sure you've done her on Michael and Us. So. We've done like we did Triumph of the Will back in the day, but like I would, I, would... I want to do the non like Triumph of the Will. Let's do her mountain pictures. You know, you know what we did on Michael and Us? We watched her underwater documentary, the mm. one she made like when she was a hundred. Yeah. Not a lot to report. No. I would love to do an episode about Lenny Riefenstahl about the She other was an stuff. actor, too. Yeah. Like, let's do that at some point. Yeah. Big fan, uh, Walt Disney of Lenny's films. Gave her a tour of Disney Studios. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. So our next letter goes- They should have hauled Walt Disney in front of the Nuremberg trial and fucking locked him up, if you ask me. <laughs> well, he's still alive. His head <laughs> frozen somewhere. All right, so our next letter is from Michael, and he asks, During a recent trip to the cinema, I saw the trailers for Matthew Vaughn's Argyle and James Wan's new Aquaman movie, one after the other. Wow, cinema brilliance right up there on screen. The medium is alive and well. By the end of those two previews, I was exhausted by how many hot people were featured on screen. These are not just good-looking men and women, but humans with textbook perfect bodies. Oh, man, I just saw last night the trailer for that new Sydney Sweeney movie. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> Slender ladies <laughs> and ridiculously fit guys. I'm not saying these perform performers necessarily lack talent, though the talent was probably not the primary reason they were cast, but it seems today's big studio movies exclusively feature humans who look like they were chiseled from marble. In contrast, Killers of the Flower Moon featured such a refreshing variety of physical features amongst its performers. For me, this makes the world of film feel more authentic to real life and genuinely lived in. Have big studio movies always been for hotties only, or is this a new phenomenon? Best, Michael. I actually agree with the letter writer's point, and I would say that uh, back, well, first of all, back during the studio era, you had all sorts of people like Edward G. Robinson. I, that's exactly who I was going to yeah. do, go to. Or even Humphrey Bogart, frankly. Could you have people that look like the Three Stooges these days? No. Could you have a guy who looks like John Candy these days be a star? No. Can you name one who looks like him? No, no nobody. No. And also, well, he's not a star, though, but like Paul Walter Hauser. Is getting up there. I, I want him. I want her to be a star. Yeah. He's like really the exception that proves the rule, though. Mm-hmm. Very and, funny. Love that guy. And then you look at like the 1970s where there are all these guys like Dustin Hoffman and um, who are some other uggos who were <laughs> uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Uggos. Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> yeah, frankly. Sylvester Stallone was pretty. But even he was someone fat, like, but like his Bruce face. Willis. Yeah. Like yeah. The, you don't get a Bruce Willis starring in a Die Hard these days. You get The Rock who looks like he's CG'd in. I mean, every now and then there's a character actor who through persistence and luck and talent like a Paul Giamatti becomes a star or a Philip Seymour Hoffman rest in peace. Yeah. But I will, I will say, yeah, I think it's a problem that so many of the stars are these like textureless Chris's. I know? don't want a funny hunk. I yeah. want a John Candy up on screen making me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the joke is like, isn't it funny that they're handsome and cut? Don't like and it. And they can be silly as well. Chris Pratt was funnier when he wasn't a hunk. And I, I do think that this speaks to a, a moral rot in Hollywood. <laughs> a moral rot. Yeah. That's only been starting in the last few decades. I think it's enhanced in the last few decades. Mm. Yeah. We need movie studios are so risk averse. Yeah. Right. There's going to be a rubber the, band effect, though. And I, that, like, I hope a so. A bunch of uggos, as you said, I, are going to become the star of a bunch of movies. Movies are so, yeah. Studios are so risk averse. So for the same reason that they've been so dominated by these same few franchises for the last 10 years, they've also been dominated by people who are too attractive yeah uh, that said man yeah i did see that trailer for that sydney sweeney movie and um uh, fava hubba, hubba. Uh, tex avery wolf you know eyes Wait, coming out the other guy he was in glenn powell too handsome yeah yeah he's pretty funny and charismatic and guy. i also want to say in that in that movie which is called anyone but you i think it's called yeah everybody in that trailer looked so good like mm-hmm. they're on a vacation every man and woman on screen it's like oh my god God. Get me and Will up there on screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, I gotta say now, how do you rank the Chris's? Okay. Chris Pine, number one. Chris Hemsworth is okay. Yeah, I like Chris Hemsworth. And then Chris Evans. Those are the three yeah. Chris's. And then, look, Chris Pratt is not without talent, but, you know. I mean, it's gone now. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. you know, he... Uh, you know, the human growth hormone he's taken, it has obliterated from his body. I also don't like that he's like the voice of Mario and the voice soon of Garfield, Garfield. which I mean, his Mario, like he's cast as those characters that again, that's risk aversion. That's a studio saying who's the most bland and non-threatening voice that we can get. So there can be no distinct spin on these characters who has nothing controversial. He goes to church every Sunday. That's right. He's a, a very good, controversial a good man. He's married to a Schwarzenegger. That's right. He's a good man. Yeah. How can 
they make a Garfield movie and not have, you know, someone talking like this? I agree. Like a Lorenzo Music or even a Bill Murray. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, you know, Lorenzo Music doing Bill Murray in Bill the Murray, real Ghostbusters. Bill Murray, there's an uggo. Why don't we have comedy stars that look like that anymore? Why don't we have also, comedy stars? a good man. A good man. man. <laughs> <laughs> will we get a new Bill Murray movie in our lifetime? I actually, a starring rule. I don't think we will. And okay. I'll tell you why. When you get a movie canceled mid-production, then it's time to retire. I think I think that's why. And listen, I know that everyone says these guys who get me too or whatever don't face consequences. I think Bill Murray will. Yes. I think Bill Murray cost a lot of people a lot of money. How much more time, though? Because even Wes Anderson was like, oh, yeah, we just didn't have time to fit Bill yeah, Murray in our schedule. Scheduling yeah, scheduling conflicts. Yeah. And he comes back, he's like, Bill Murray's starring in my next movie. I think we'll see Bill Murray in a few things. Yeah. Like, he's in the new Ghostbusters. But Oh, is he? I think they'll they'll wheel him out like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, but but for the most part, I I think yeah, Bill Murray has lost a lot of money for a lot of people, and uh, at least Kevin Spacey finally getting he's in DTV realm now in like Romanian productions. That's I saw right. a trailer for like he's doing a voice for a movie. It's like that's all we can give you, Kevin. Uh, did you watch Being Frank with Tucker? I watched some scenes of it. His it's annual, so funny. His annual Christmas it's not, message. It's not annual. It's been a while since we got a new one, but uh, boy, why does so? If, if you're listening to this 10 million years in the future and you have no idea what we're talking about, Kevin Spacey releases, often releases on Boxing Day, a Christmas message, a video where he's in character as his House of Cards guy, which every time I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember House of Cards. I've never watched House of Cards. Uh, that is the only it's House like, of it's Cards so content. Same, yeah. same. It was so long ago. And I think, like, why not one of his other characters? Like, let's mix it up. Let's get American Beauty guy in there. Let's get... <laughs> Let's get, um, who did he play? K-Pax. Let's get K-Pax. Wait, wait, who did he play in that, uh, you know, somewhere under- Oh, Bo- Bobby Darren. <laughs> yeah, let's get Bobby Darren. Yeah, let's have him doing a song about somewhere. There's a Podcast A Ride Patreon episode where they go through Kevin Spacey miscellanea <laughs> and they talk about, like, him hosting award show. He hosted so many award shows. Yeah, he was a song and dance man, an impressionist. And they review that Bobby Darren movie where he's, like, 50 years too old to That's play right. Bobby Darren. He was older when he made that movie than Bobby Darren was when he died by like years. That's so funny. Yeah. So Kevin Spacey movie coming up in our future. So on our Patreon this week, we have a couple of goodies. We're talking as we do every month about movies we've been watching lately, movies we haven't talked about anywhere else. Uh, We're going to be talking about such films as Men Behind the Sun, The (laughs) Little Shop of Horrors. What else have you seen? Uh, I talk about some of the holiday movie Mind Melters uh, that I watched. What else did I see? Whatever I was guided by, by a book that I flipped through an encyclopedia in French, and I pick a director, usually an old Hollywood guy, and go, let me watch one of these movies. So lots of stuff, lots of films, a free-flowing discussion. I discuss a movie that had not been logged once on Letterboxd. I mean, that's that's for the real sickos. it's a Hollywood film. But in addition to that, because we reached a certain patron count, yes. we promised that we would do something special. Yep. And this is, if you're not a patron right now, you got like a couple weeks, then this is going away forever. That's right. It's only up for a month. Yeah. Then it will self-destruct. We did a commentary on the episode of The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. A uh, Star is Burned. A Star is Burned. It's the one where the critic appears. Yeah. So you can check that out on our Patreon right now while you're listening to it. If you've ever been like, what will Justin and Will's commentary on a Simpson episode sound like? Us laughing at a lot of the jokes, then repeating them poorly. <laughs> but we also discuss what's going on. A, it's a fun, a treat for fans. So you can check that out now at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. You just got to become a $5 member and you will get this thing while it lasts. Next week, Big Denver will last even further into (laughs) January January. because we're doing our biggest episode of the year. The one that gets the most clicks. Absolutely. Shame on you, I just want to say (laughs) to the listener. Shame on you. Wag of the finger. Uh, Do you not... What about Deepa Donraj? What mm-hmm. about Wong Jing? Why are these episodes not getting as many clicks? Did we do an episode on Wong Jing? Yeah, we did over a year ago. Wong Jing round two. We should do Wong Jing round two. But anyway, next week, it's the best movies of the year. We're going to be talking about our favorite movies of the year 2023. Do you have 10, Will? No. No? Wow. Well, no, I, I could. Yeah. But we're not doing it as a top 10. We're just no, going to we talk about this. movies that we like because yeah. I don't want to... I don't want to do the countdown. I just want to talk. Well, I don't about... think we've ever done a countdown. We did, or in the early years. Oh well, I'll have ten, and I'm trying to do ten, and I'm doing the you know the hard work of looking at a country on Letterboxd 2023. Is there any movie that seems interesting? He, you're you're digging deep. I'm digging deep. Okay, because if I have to go on Hollywood films that I saw, boy, nothing. Short list. 
Wait, what new Marvel movie came out? The Marvel. That'll be up there. The Marvels, yeah, yeah. Aquaman 2. Yeah. I did love Aquaman 1. It was on my list. Uh, oh, the best superhero movie of all. The best comic book adaptation. Uh, Dick Tracy special. Tracy zooms in. You're not allowed to put that on your list. No, I'm putting it. This is a preview for next week. I'm definitely talking about that. Uh, all right. Yeah, there's always one. It's my list. Yeah. I get to do what I want. <laughs> so we'll be talking about the best films of 2023. So we'll hope you'll listen. Of course you will. It's the one that everybody listens to. So until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, we are the prognosticators who always get it right. Never wrong. Did we make fun of Top Gun Maverick for years before it came out? Yes. <laughs> Did I make fun of Wonka, which looked absolutely atrocious? And I see it and found it very charming. Yes. Okay, so we're going to be looking at some of the big blockbusters coming out over the next 12 months. 2024's blockbusters, and I am going to predict box office. Yeah, I will. Oh, you're going to give a number to it. That's right. I am. All right. And I've done, I haven't seen this list. <laughs> yes. You're just going to tell me the titles. I'm going to predict. All right. January. Mean Girls the Musical. 40 million. Okay. Are you excited about it? No. All There's right. already a Mean Girls. Yeah. The Beekeeper. Now, I'm excited about this. Uh, $20 million. <laughs> Jason Statham in an R-rated movie directed by the guy who did the first Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, man, January. I, I'm very excited for January. That's where all the good movies come out. So, Dune Part 2. Oh, um, $150 million. Well, okay. Domestic. Domestic. First one made $100 million during the pandemic. I think we're going up by $50 million. The Fall Guy, the new Ryan Gosling action film based on the 70s TV series, also featuring Emily Blunt. I don't know what this is. I'm going to say $80 million. If the new jo the new film from the imagination of John Krasinski. Did you see the trailer? Uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds is in this. Oh, God. Uh, uh, Fiona Shaw, Steve Carell, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Matt Damon, and also Emily Blunt. Okay. Uh, not knowing anything about this movie, I predict $70 million domestic. Okay. Furiosa, the Ooh, new George, George Miller. Miller. New, new film in the Mad Max saga. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to lowball this. I'm going to say $120 million. Okay. Because Mad Max Fury Road did not make as much money as you think it no, did. No, it did not. It was considered kind of a failure when it came out uh, from a box office standpoint. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Does that still have legs? Uh, yeah, I think we've been seeing a lot of franchises over the last two or three years that have been kind of running on fumes, that have been on the decline. Mm. And I think this one will be no exception. I say $130 million. A John Wick spin-off film, Ballerina, directed by auteur Len Weissman. Oh, God. Uh, uh, John Wick franchise? Will it have, should it be called John Wick Ballerina? Would it get more people in through the door? Again, I think this has peaked, and because it's off-brand, I am going to say $70 million. Do you follow the box office? No, like, I don't. Those not numbers really. mean nothing to me. It's like, yeah, sure. I, I, I do follow the box office. I want somebody to write all these down so that I can be <laughs> proven right eventually. Inside Out 2. Ugh. Oh, God. I don't know. Do you uh, know that they fired all the voice cast members except for like Amy Poehler because they asked for more money? Yeah, so Louis Black yep. is going to be back. Bill Hader is not in it anymore. Uh, I'm not going to predict this one. I don't care. Move on. Uh, let's see here. I don't... Despicable Me 4. Oh, God. Um, You know what? I say... I think the Minions have legs. I say $180 million. Uh, so I can't believe this movie exists. Man, I'm discovering some stuff here. A new chapter following the 1996 disaster blockbuster twister oh twisters yes twisters. this is from the director of minara oh minari minari which yes. got a best picture nomination yes 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 the this is the trajectory for directors now it was steven yun was in it that's right okay uh i am i predict i could be completely wrong i predict a flop it's got glenn powell yeah <laughs> it's got normal people breakout Daisy Edgar Jones, not familiar with her. I feel like the Twister brand is not that strong. Okay. I could be proven wrong a year from now. If you want to come back and make me eat my words, that's fine. But I say 60 million. Deadpool 3. Oh, uh, 250 million. One billion dollars. You're yeah. lowballing a lot of these. These are all domestic figures. Domestic figures. Okay. God, there's nothing I am less excited for than Deadpool 3. But I will dutifully sit and watch it in theaters. Listen, I know you will, too. So superhero movies are on the downswing. Yeah. Most of them have flopped lately. I believe there are several characters who audiences still love. And unfortunately, I believe Deadpool is one of them. You love those chimichangas. That's right. Okay. We're moving from Deadpool. What about Craven the Hunter? 
who is that? <laughs> Craven the Hunter is a Marvel, uh, a Spider-Man villain. And as you may know, A.V. Arad and Sony own the rights to the villains of Spider-Man right. and some of the protagonists. So this is Spider-Man the, himself. This is in the Venom cinematic universe. Yes. Listen, I think this is exactly the kind of superhero who's starting to flop now. Yeah, I, say, I mean, Morbius made no money. Yeah. So Both times it was I say I say $65 million. Well, okay. I'm going to say $30 million. Okay. Yep. Uh, September. God, I'm reminded that these movies are actually coming out. Beetlejuice 2. Oh, wow. Now, this is a wild card. Yeah. Because Jenna Ortega is in it. Oh, and she's very popular very right now. Very popular now. So, you know what? I, I'm I'm going to be a little bullish on this one. I'm going to say $95 million domestic. The real question, do you think there is any way you can enjoy Beetlejuice 2? I want to believe. Yes. Period. Will you like it more than The Flash? I don't know how I could like it less. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Will, is that a movie that you will rush out to see? Yes. Really? Yes. Opening day, I'll be there. Wow. Do you think Tim Burton, like, he can just, like, awake for the first time in 20 years and make something fun? He was given an interview where he was like, I'm uh, using practical effects. Really? I'm doing it just like the first movie. So I want to believe. I don't, but I want to. Well, there's another Transformers movie coming out in September? How? Now, that's a franchise out of gas. Yeah, Because those, those have been flopping for years. No, the new one actually made quite a bit of money. It didn't make as much as the the like biggest one, but it did okay. Okay, new Transformers. And again, we are in a post-pandemic reality. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of flopping lately. I say $115 million domestic. Okay. I mean, all the numbers that you say for these big blockbusters is really not that much. I mean, just look at how they've been performing over the last year that's what, what do you think will be the trend of 2024 when it comes to movies i think it will continue much like this past year or i think a lot of these franchises will continue a gradual sort of uh depletion i think there's something in the air you could see it in the barbieheimer phenomenon where people are looking for something a little bit new different yeah now i get people are going to say but barbie is a property but oppenheimer's a biopic it's christopher yeah, nolan they're, they're two tourist films where the people behind the scenes can make their own decisions that's right and that's what people want i think people are looking for something new right now yeah all right october i mean speaking of new finally it's time to have a folly adieu with the joker joker folly adieu the second one uh, i think this one will underperform a bit you think so for for two reasons joker fever was a little while ago now it's it's cooled down and secondly this one is apparently very different than the first one like it's going to be a musical uh, is it going to be a real musical i don't know but i think it's going to be his gremlins too and, <laughs> wow that is a big claim which that's not me saying it's going to be as good as gremlins too no 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 it's going to be like no one is telling him no exactly so i think so uh, like joker be uh, shitting on screen and then like rubbing it in his face like gg he, allen yeah he's yeah. going back to the gg allen documentary roots so i'm interested to see what he does with this but i am going to say 120 million dollars okay november a movie that i hope the director lives long enough to see it actually come out gladiator 2 oh god gladiator is a strong brand people love gladiator okay and but Russell Crowe is not back in this one. It's a new guy. And also Ridley Scott's been flopping lately. Mm -hmm. I say, uh, I think it's going to do Napoleon style business. Well, yeah. Well, how did Napoleon do? It made 60 million domestic. Oof, but I think, I think it can do. Didn't it make tons of money internationally though? I'm sure it did. Yeah. So I think Gladiator 2, I'm looking at 90 million domestic okay. and a lot of money overseas. Wicked part one. This feels the, the, really long in the, the tooth. the Wizard of Oz musical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when is this being released? November. You see, if it opened on Christmas, yes. I, I might think this could make $200 million. There's an untitled Venom sequel that's supposed to be released November oh my 8th. God. What is this is awful. Yeah. I hate this list. This is terrible. <laughs> you wanted only the big ones, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a new animated Lord of the Rings film. It says in theaters, I... Lord of the Rings, The Clone Wars? No, The War of Rahirim. I don't even know what that is. I feel like it's probably just going to go direct to a streaming service. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nosferatu, the new Robert Eggers film. Right. Um, I say, uh, that's kind of an art movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's going to make $40 million. And finally, the Karate Kid film. It's not going to come out December 13, the one with Jackie Chan and it, Ralph Macchio. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, if it's a Christmas release, I'm going to say $80 million. Sonic the Hedgehog 3? Oh, man. I think that one's going to start. You know, so that's a Christmas release. Yep. 
I think a lot of kids are going to be taken to it. I say 150 million. And finally, a prequel to, I believe, the most successful film of all time, Mufasa, The Lion King. Oh, I don't know. A billion dollars. A billion dollars, yeah. yeah. So there you go. This is my 100% <laughs> accurate prediction of the box office what this year. What a depressing list of movies. Oh, my God. I thought that'd be fun, but it wasn't. It was horrible. <laughs>